1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week, Pluto's puzzling polygons.
2: They look almost like biology, except they're geology.
3: And two teams disagree on what's going on at the center
4: of the Earth. Is one of them wrong? Are both of them wrong? Or are they both right? And is there some really new fundamental physics that we don't understand?
1: Plus the genetics behind a textbook case of evolution in action. This is The Nature Podcast for June second, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith.
3: And I'm Adam Levy. In 19th century England, a series of events transpired which would rocket the previously unexceptional peppered moth to worldwide fame. The moth started the century as speckled white to blend in with their favourite trees. But then, around the middle of the 19th century, a brand new form of the moth was spotted with completely black wings. By the end of the century, this black-winged peppered moth had replaced the lighter-winged moths over much of England. What was going on? Many causes were suggested, ranging from humidity to disease. Then, in the 1890s, a naturalist named J.W. Tut put forward the idea that the darkening of the peppered moth's wings might be linked to the pollution from factories, which was turning the trees black.
5: Put the peppered moth with its white ground colour on a black tree trunk, and what would happen? It would, as you say, be very conspicuous and would fall a prey to the first bird that spied it out. But some of these peppered moths have more black about them than others, and you can easily understand that the blacker they are, the nearer they will be to the colour of the trunk of the tree, and the greater will become the difficulty of detecting them. So it really is, the paler ones the birds eat, the darker ones escape.
3: We now know that Tut was more or less correct, and that the peppered moth's appearance was changing thanks to natural selection, helped along by the fires of industry and keen-eyed birds. This story has become the textbook example of evolution in action. But even though more than a century has passed, we still don't completely understand what was going on at a genetic level. And so, Elix Akiri at the University of Liverpool has been investigating. But what did we already know about the genetics behind this famous story?
5: Well, surprisingly, not very much. I was, uh, when I, I first Uh, moved to to Liverpool in the early 2000s, I was uh, very surprised to discover that no one had actually identified the location of um, the mutation that controlled the difference between the black form and the light-coloured form. I was hoping to really dig into the underlying genetic mechanisms because that has Become the holy grail of evolutionary biology, which is to say, to try and link uh, a specific change to a change at the fundamental genetic levels.
4: And
3: what were you actually able to find out?
5: After a lot of work, we were able to find out that the uh, mutation turns out to be a sequence of DNA that uh, is able to um, replicate itself and jump. From one location in the genome, copy itself and insert itself into another location in the genome.
3: So, this sequence inserting itself is an example of what's called a transposon. But where's it actually inserted itself that it managed to have this effect on the peppered moth?
5: This transposon has inserted itself within a gene called cortex, which is really uh, very unexpected because cortex is not related directly, at least, to uh, wing patterning in insects.
3: So does finding out about these changes reveal anything about the history of the evolution of the peppered moth?
5: Well, one of the nice things that we've been able uh, to do, we've been able to um, infer when the likely date of the occurrence of the actual mutation event We found it to have occurred around 1819, which is uh, kind of smack in the middle of the early part of the Industrial Revolution. That was Elixir-Kiri. But we're still left with a mystery.
3: This gene, Cortex, doesn't seem to have anything to do with wing pattern. So why does it have such a dramatic effect on the wings of the peppered moth? Well, another paper out in this week's Nature might help get to the bottom of this riddle. Nicola Nado at the University of Sheffield has been looking at wing patterns in some distant relatives of the peppered moth. I gave Nicola a ring to find out what she was looking for.
6: So we were really interested in this group of butterflies called the Heliconius butterflies. Um, and that's because they not only have a lot of variation in species, so they've got about 40 species, but they also have variation within species. So in a single species, there can be multiple different colour pattern forms. And not only that, but there's also... Mimicry between species. These colour patterns that they've got are really bright and vivid, and, the, and they warn predators that, they, um, that these butterflies contain toxins. So, these warning colour patterns act in a very different way to the peppered moth patterns, which are involved in hiding the, the moths from predators, whereas these uh, patterns in the butterflies are actually meant to be seen and meant to deter predators.
3: So so you've got all these different species of heliconius butterflies and you're trying to work out how how they arrive at their colour patterns on their wings. I mean, how how did you begin to actually look into that?
6: Recently, what we've been able to do with new sequencing technologies is to sequence large numbers of individuals across their whole genome and then look for uh, parts of the DNA sequence that specifically associate with particular colour patterns.
3: So so what did you actually find?
6: So we identified one gene called cortex that controls colour pattern variation in three different species of butterfly. It's a gene that is within a family of cell cycle regulators and they're found in everything from yeast to humans. So it was quite unexpected that this this gene was controlling butterfly colour patterns.
3: This cortex gene you identified in this group of butterflies is the same gene they pinned down for the peppered moth. What's going on here that's linking this pretty unexpected gene to wing pattern?
6: So um, in, in both moths and butterflies, uh, the colour patterns on the wing are made up of these tiny scales that cover the wing. So they are a bit like tiles on a roof. Um, and the colour patterns are made up by the arrangement of the different colours of those scales on the wing. So what we think is happening in, in both the butterflies and the moths, is that this gene cortex is controlling that rate that the scales develop at. And that's what is controlling the, co- the colour pattern differences. But it was really surprising that it was the same gene because these are such incredibly different colour patterns. Um, so the peppered moth is essentially just a switch to being black, whereas the colour patterns in Heliconis butterflies are these bright, vivid colour patterns that are involved in, in warning predators.
3: That was Nicola Nado, and before her, Ilix Sakiri. Both their papers are available at nature.com forward slash nature. You also heard from Arun Takar, who played the part of JW Tut.
1: Coming up later in the show, getting to the core of a conundrum about the Earth's insides and what's behind Pluto's polygonal surface patterns. But first, it's the research highlights. Here's Sharmini Bundel.
7: The planet Mars is coming in from the cold. Scientists think it's emerging from an ice age. The planet is mostly a dust ball, but it does have some ice. And in the opposite fashion to Earth, when conditions warm on Mars, ice builds up at the North Pole. Ice has been building up there for the past several hundred thousand years, suggesting the ice age ended about that long ago, in planetary terms, pretty recently. The data comes from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Understanding the Martian climate could help determine when the planet was habitable in the past and how that changed. Science has the paper. Giant squid are the sea monsters of choice for fiction, turning up in Moby Dick and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But in real life, they're much more elusive. Fewer than 500 have ever been seen, usually dead or dying. So it's been difficult to put an upper bound on their size. A new paper gives it a go, looking at the characteristics of those that have been found and how their length relates to their beak and body size. It concludes that they could reach 20 metres in length. At their largest, they could be too big to be eaten by their main predator, sperm whales. The paper is in the Journal of Zoology.
3: Last year, after a trip that took almost a decade, the NASA spacecraft New Horizons whipped by Pluto on its way to the outskirts of the solar system. All the while, it snapped photos that scientists have been poring over ever since. They revealed that the dwarf planet is far from the dull, blurry splodge it had seemed in telescopes. Instead, it has a rich and varied surface, including craters, glaciers, mountains and canyons. One feature had scientists particularly intrigued. A pattern of interlocking shapes. Two teams writing in Nature think they've sussed out the cause. Reporter Lizzie Gibney began by asking one team leader, Bill McKinnon at Washington University in St. Louis, to describe Pluto's puzzling polygons.
2: If you fly up to Pluto, as we did last July, you'll see a bright heart-shaped region. And on the left side, you'll see that it's actually separated into not so much polygons, but individual cells that are tens of kilometres wide. And they're basically, they look almost like, biology except their geology.
8: The pictures remind me of uh, what you might see if you zoomed in on dinosaur skin or something.
2: <laughs> so when we saw them though the scale of them uh, really w- took us uh, took us by surprise. The tops of the cells are are raised by you know several tens of meters and the cells are separated by little sort of margins little depressed margins.
8: So what were some of the possible suggestions then for what might be causing these uh, cell-like shapes?
2: Well In geology, you can see patterns like this caused by a number of things, like uh, lava can cool, uh, thermally contract, and sort of break into into polygonal patterns. In Arctic areas on the Earth, there's a thing called freeze-thaw, and you get these polygons, but they're on the meter scale. But on Pluto, we are in a vast plain of solid nitrogen ice, and um, it's just the most phenomenal thing, and the the leading hypothesis even last July during the New Horizons encounter was that we were looking at the surface of great convective upwellings of uh, nitrogen ice being heated from below, rising to the surface, cooling, and then sinking again at the margins where the, where, where the cells uh, meet each other.
8: So this was the, uh, the leading idea then was that um, it was some kind of convection process happening. Um, how did you go about verifying that?
2: The proof of how this is really operating came from numerical modelling, where we can really simulate the convection process using the information of how nitrogen actually behaves when you squeeze it or when you heat it. And we're able to show that, in fact, we can generate these enormous cells On Pluto, um, as long as the nitrogen ice is at least uh, maybe on the order of five kilometres deep.
8: And knowing that these uh, kind of cell shapes made of nitrogen ice are caused by convection, what does that tell us about Pluto?
2: Well, it tells us that there is, in fact, heat coming out of Pluto, even though we see all these wild ices on its surface. And this very modest amount of heat is sufficient to make this nitrogen basically do a kind of slow boil, if you like. Well, not really boiling, but a slow ascent and descent. So it's, a, it's like a giant lava lamp, except it's a giant lava, I mean, sheet.
8: <laughs> now, Bill, your group is actually one of two who've been modelling Pluto's surface. And while you mainly used a computer to simulate convection, the second paper instead did some calculations about the nitrogen ice, and, and that allowed them to figure out what type of convection explained what they saw. Alexander Trowbridge from Purdue University is from that second team. Alexander, what did your models tell you about Pluto?
9: We've learned actually quite a few remarkable things. Not only is it convecting, but it's convecting vigorously, which is a pretty remarkable result. Such a cold body, we were not expecting that at all. It's convecting at around 1.5 centimetres per year, uh, which corresponds to a surface age of around 1 million years which is remarkably young for what was presumed to be a dead geologic body.
8: And both your team and uh, Bill McKinnon's team both came up with the conclusion that this uh, large-scale convection is is causing the cell or polygon shapes. Were there any big differences um, between your two teams in terms of what you then infer about those
9: polygons? So the real big difference between the two papers is the inferred thickness of the ice sheet Ours is around 10 kilometers, and theirs is more around 3 to 6 kilometers. It's pretty remarkable that two different groups, separately with two different methods, came to the same conclusion. And it further validates the explanation for these polygons being convection.
8: And back to you, Bill. Are there any other big puzzles that have emerged from the data that we have from Pluto that are still waiting to be explained?
2: Well, we want to understand the deeper history of Pluto, its origin and its internal construction. So one of the great questions we're talking about is whether a Pluto has a water ocean underneath its basically water ice mantle. We're still working on that, so people should stay tuned.
3: That was Bill McKinnon and before him, Alexander Trowbridge. Check out both papers and our news and views, all with some lovely pictures of the surface, at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up in the news chat, a supercomputer churns out a 200 terabyte proof. But
1: now, that core quandary. Almost everything that happens here on the surface of the Earth relies somehow on what happens right down in the very middle, the core. The Earth's core is our internal heating system, and the way it distributes its heat creates plate tectonics, volcanoes and Earth's magnetic field. The field, by the way, might be the reason we're here in the first place, because it shields life from harmful cosmic rays coming from space. All of this surface stuff happens because heat is moving inside the Earth, from the core to the next layer up, the mantle. This heat trafficking causes convection, which in turn generates the Earth's magnetic field. Meanwhile, the core is gradually losing heat and turning solid. But how long has the solidifying been going on? ever since the Earth was formed, or comparatively recently. Because no one can get to the core, two labs have been simulating the extraordinary pressures and temperatures of the iron at the core mantle boundary to figure out how quickly heat is moving through and therefore how long the core has been solidifying. They come to completely different conclusions. For some help unpicking the differences, I went to talk to geologist David Dobson in his lab at University College London. He's written about the two conflicting papers and he started by telling me about the theory behind the two new studies.
4: So there have been various studies which have used modelling to try and look at the well, various physical properties but one of them is the the heat transport in liquid iron uh, and we're really interested in that because thermal conductivity ultimately controls the dynamics of the core mantle boundary.
1: So let me see if I pass the 101. The heat transfer rates, if you like from the middle the very very middle to the almost middle um, if that's quick then it means that it hasn't been happening for as long and the core is younger and if the heat transfer is slow that means that it's been taking the inner core a long time to turn solid yeah, and that means that it's older that's right now, I suppose these models are all very well, but um, we'd like to know what's actually happening, and therefore some experiments come in. Now, it's not surprising that nobody has been to see what's actually happening, but it is possible, isn't it, to create some semblance of the inner to outer core transition here on the surface of
4: the Earth. Yes, that's right. That's right. So we can generate the conditions, the pressure and temperature condi- conditions throughout the whole of the Earth, right the way to the centre of the Earth, and we use these. Uh, very small, very high-pressure devices called diamond cells where you generate uh, millions of atmospheres pressure between the tips of the diamonds. And to heat them up, you can actually fire a laser through the diamonds as well, so you can directly heat your sample.
1: Well, why don't we go, David, and have a look at some of the cells that you've got uh, here in this building.
4: There we go. So that's a good diamond cell with diamonds in and samples. They are pretty small, these They're things. They're tiny, yes. So here's a, a really small one. that weighs about probably about 10 grams or so. And you have these backing plates, which are, um, you screw them together with just three screws. You can generate about two tonnes force by turning those with an Allen key. Hmm.
1: But they, it just looks like a big um, a big nut, for want of a better
4: yeah, word. absolutely. Like the kind that absolutely. you would yeah. screw with a spanner. Nothing, nothing different, standard Allen key. And then on that little circle in the centre, that's where you put your diamonds. So the diamonds are typically about a quarter of a carat, two millimetres or so on the shiny side, mm-hmm. so that you take two diamonds and you end up pushing those two tips together. So you generate the ultra-high pressure between the tips of those two diamonds.
1: These little pieces of kit, they, just, they look as if you've been using them for a while. <laughs> they don't look super sophisticated. I was kind of expecting it wasn't... Very easy to do these kinds of experiments. It looks like you could just chuck a sample in here and have it done, but in an hour.
4: For, yeah, for easy things, then it's quite low-tech. And then to heat the samples up, so everything I've talked about so far is just at room temperature, to heat it up, the best way to do that at the moment is to fire a laser through the diamonds. And you can see how hot it's getting by how brightly it glows.
1: Now, you guys here at UCL, you're not the only ones with diamond anvil cells like the ones you've just shown me. And this week in Nature, there are two papers from two different teams who've used these diamond anvil cells, same kind of method, to try and study this Earth's core conundrum. And uh, unfortunately, it's all come out quite differently, hasn't it?
4: It has. I mean, these are really, really difficult experiments to do. There's a group in the States who tried to directly measure the thermal conductivity, how fast the heat diffuses through the sample. So what the other group did in Japan, they uh, directly measured the resistance, the electrical conductivity of the wires in the diamond cell. So again, they used laser heating to get it to the temperatures, and they put four electrodes connected onto their their sample, and they directly measured what the resistance of the sample was under those conditions.
1: And they know the relationship between the electrical conductivity and the heat
4: conductivity. So yes, in principle, they should, although one's measuring one... Uh, property because they're related via this relatively simple relationship, you should be able to go from the one measurement to the other measurement, and there should be a nice agreement. However, the uh, agreement is is out by a factor of three, which I think is a remarkable success. But for the Earth, that makes means the difference between a very young outer core or a very old outer core. And it really changes the way that the, the Earth's core works as well, the dynamics of the generation of the magnetic field and things.
1: So. so impressive pair of experiments. A factor of three maybe doesn't seem that much on the surface, but taken to its logical conclusion, we have one team who thinks, right, well, the heat isn't going very quickly from one to the other, and the other team thinks it's going quite quickly from one to the other, and, yeah. and uh, the implications of those are that we have a very young or a very old Earth's core, so we're back at square one.
4: Yeah, as you say, we're not quite there yet.
1: And in your position, as someone who cares deeply about the deep Earth's core, where does this leave us? Is there anything you can, you can take that's, that's useful from these experiments? Can you, I don't know, think of a, a different way again of, of doing them?
4: Well, I guess the question is why they disagree. Uh, is one of them wrong? Are both of them wrong? Or are they both right? And is there some really new fundamental physics that we don't understand? Which, clearly, if that the last was the case, that would be very, very interesting one possibility would be to do the simultaneous measurement. There wouldn't be any reason why you couldn't measure the resistance at the same time as this these pulse thermal conduction things.
1: If this had been your lab that had done one of these papers, would this be you know, fascinating and you'd be emailing them immediately and trying to work together, or would you just be
4: exasperated
1: that this could be the case?
4: I think I'd take six months off, <laughs> um, and after a long holiday, then the thing to do is to is to collaborate or at least try and reproduce each other's results one way or another.
1: That was David Dobson, who's at University College London. Read his news and views and check out the two papers at nature.com slash nature. It's the news now and Chief News Editor Celeste Beaver joins me in the studio. Now, uh, Davide is our usual maths correspondent, but you've stepped ably into his shoes today to tell us about one of the largest maths proofs that's ever been put through a supercomputer.
10: That's right. It is the largest ever mathematics proof known. Um, It comes in at a whopping 200 terabytes, which is equivalent to roughly all the digitized text held in the U.S. Library of Congress. Two days running 800 processors in parallel to crunch through this monster. So it's a record-breaking maths proof. And it's,
1: it's significantly bigger, isn't it, than any other computer-assisted proof that we know of?
10: Yeah, that's right. So until this paper that came out about this proof, um, the record holder was a 13 gigabyte proof that was published in 2014. And at that time, that was compared to the size of Wikipedia. What exactly, before we get onto the implications of computer-assisted
1: maths proofs more generally, what were these um, researchers actually trying to figure out?
10: They were trying to solve um, something called the Boolean Pythagorean triples problem, which has eluded mathematicians for decades, uh, but is actually kind of fun. The proof asks the solver to imagine that if every integer, every positive integer, was coloured one of two different colours, red or blue, um, is it possible to assign each integer a colour such that when Pythagoras' theorem is laid out, uh, which is a squared plus b squared equals c squared... Um, none of the integers in Pyth- the Pythagoras equation are all the same colour.
1: So it's basically getting, it's one of these slightly uh, esoteric attempts to look at the structures that might be inherent in very large sets of yeah, numbers. Yeah, that's right. And you just need a large amount of processing power to do it. No human could presumably read through this proof. E-
10: no, no human, I mean, no human could. They, they did uh, manage to crunch it down into a once they'd done it, into a sort of smaller version um, that might be run on a smaller computer, but no human could ever hope to read this proof. So how do you verify something like that then?
1: That's the next step, isn't it, in maths proofs? You do the proof and then someone has to kind of check to see if it's uh, not crazy.
10: There is automated verification software that's actually quite standard in mathematics. Um, So once they'd crunched through the proof, that actually wasn't the hard bit, But certainly it raises an interesting question that if no human has verified it, is it really mathematics? No one um, knows why the answer is what it is, which, by the way, is up to 7,825. If you colour all the integers below that number, red or blue, you can find um, solutions where you don't have all one colour in Pythagoras. But after that point, you cannot. So... um, no one knows why that is, if this number has any meaning, why it stops there. Uh, so it lacks a theory to kind of explain it. We we now just, thanks to the computer, know this is the answer.
1: And, and purists and sort of philosophers of mathematics almost would be less interested in this kind of approach then, it's fair to say, than someone sitting down with a pencil and paper and really trying to reason out why it would be the case.
10: Yeah, I mean, I suppose it, depends what you think mathematics is. If you see it as a quest to increase human understanding of mathematics, this kind of thing is not so helpful. Uh, It's more just a sort of accumulation of facts. However, there is a ray of hope, um, because the previous record holder, the 13 gigabyte proof, which um, was first solved by a computer in 2014, a human being did follow that up, and solve it in a more old fashioned way, and come to a more kind of satisfying conclusion. So the computer sort of pioneered it, but then a human proof did follow. So this is also a possibility. So this could be a
1: kind of signpost to say, well, you need to get yourself to about here. This is what the answer is. Computer doesn't know why, but go ahead and try and reason it out.
10: Yeah, I would think so. I, I actually have no idea what the hope is for this, and hu- this particular proof in humans. But in general, we've seen that computer-assisted proofs can then go on to be proved in the more old-fashioned way.
1: All right. So one supposedly intractable problem then now very tractable thanks to computers. Another intractable problem, which we talked about, in fact, on Backchat last month, Nuclear fusion and specifically this project ITER in the south of France, riddled with delays and spiralling costs. Um, but the US has just launched its opinion on ITER.
10: Yeah, that's right. So the US is one of the seven members of this kind of unprecedented international collaboration um, that makes up the ITER group. And because of uh, various criticisms over the past few years, there's been some question about whether the US would stay in, and in particular, because um, although the US is one of the members and is bound by a treaty to keep contributing money to ITER, it actually can't release that money unless Congress approves it. The US Department of Energy, which funds um, most fusion research in the US, just released this long awaited report that recommends, well, it sort of gives a, a cautious approval to ITER um, and recommends that Congress fund it at least until 2018. So, a recommendation from the Department of Energy, who would
1: be given the money from Congress to then give to ETA. But crucially, they haven't got the money yet and they can't give it away without Congress saying yes.
10: That's right. This is just a recommendation. So it's a positive sign. But there are signs that Congress is divided over this. There's a, a bill that the Senate just passed um, that zeroes out, so removes all funding from ETA, an energy bill. However, that bill does have to go through the House of Representatives before it would be signed into law and there will be further discussion that will be informed by this Department of Energy report. Um, Would ETA survive without
1: funding from the US? Because after all, one of seven stakeholders, I mean, that's quite a chunk of cash they'd be missing.
10: Yeah, so it comes to about 9% of ETA's budget. So um, substantial, but on the other hand, certainly not my majority in any sense. And no one's really sure what would happen if the U.S. pulled out, really. Uh, it's completely unclear what would happen. Most scientists say they just don't know. In April, the director, the new director general, um, Bernard Bigot, did say that even though the contributions are just 9%, the U.S. does have a huge amount of fusion expertise that the project would really miss. And the Department of Energy, in its recommendation, even though its main recommendation is to continue funding ETA, that only is until 2018, where the, the U.S. should re-evaluate its position and decide at that point whether it wants to continue. Thank you,
1: Celeste. And yes, you can check out Nature News for more on ETA and the US's contribution as we know more about it. That's it from us this week. Find us on Twitter
3: and do keep sending us your scientific or fanciful sketches using the hashtag science doodles. Can you beat a cell cycle inspired by the Tour de France or a rather natty thyroid gland? I'm Adam Levy.
1: And I'm Kerry Smith. This episode of The Nature Podcast has whet your appetite for scientific research. Check out Scientific Reports, the open access home for all scientifically sound research. They publish articles from all areas of the natural and clinical sciences. If you publish with them, you can expect fast and fair peer review and great exposure with over 2 million visitors a month to the website nature.com. If you're one of the visitors, you can expect studies ranging from how to tell apart African from Asian elephant tusks using handheld x-ray devices to a study suggesting that pain tolerance correlates with how many friends you have. For all this and more, visit scientific reports at nature.com slash s-r-e-p.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...